Today's passage of scripture comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we looked at two marks of gospel spirituality. Restore one another in verse 1 and bear one another in verse 2. And this week, we have two more marks, boasting in Christ in verses 3 and 5 and share with one another in verse 6. So I'd like to look at first what it means to boast in Christ, verses 3 and 5. And by that, we'll first again read these two verses, three few verses. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. You know, this third mark of gospel spirituality is strange because at first glance, it seems to be that Paul is telling us that we should boast in ourselves. And if you know anything about the Bible and the New Testament, you know that there are many times where scripture says, do not boast in yourself. Paul even says that, do not boast in yourself in Romans. So why does Paul say this? In fact, we only need to look a few verses later and we see in chapter six, verse 14, Paul also mentions again boasting. And he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So which is it, Paul? Should we boast in Christ and the cross alone? Or should we, as he says in our verse today, vote, boast in ourselves? Is Paul contradicting himself? What is he saying? How, how, do we, how are we supposed to understand this? I'd like to look then at sort of combining this idea of the, the fact that actually ultimately Paul is saying to boast in Christ alone. But then if you have that as the foundation of how we are to live our life in faith, then boasting in ourselves as we're ultimately boasting in Christ, is a really good thing. It can be a good thing. And here's how we do it. First, boasting in Christ, according to our verse in verse 3, evaluates our something as nothing. It's very difficult to evaluate ourselves because our tendency is to either very much underestimate who we are or usually most of the time very much overestimate who we are to, in actuality, think of ourselves as something rather than nothing. Now, for those of you who have ever watched TV shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent, there are those audition scenes where they have to go in front of the judges and sing. And so often, my kids call it the cringe moment, you know, having secondhand embarrassment. Some, one of my daughters cannot even watch something like that because she just feels so embarrassed for the person. And you, you watch this person 
And they, they go in with such confidence saying, I'm ready to sing. And then they open their mouths and it's off pitch, flat, really terrible. And I'm sure most of us are thinking, why are you there? Why, are you, why would you do that? Now, why do you think someone would do that? It's probably because, one, no one has ever told them that they're actually that bad. And in fact, most people around them have enabled them and, and actually not wanted to say that they're that bad because they don't want to hurt their feelings. And so rather than ever speaking the truth, you just avoid it and enable the person until they're at this complete place of utter embarrassment. Or perhaps those who are surrounding that person, they themselves don't have the ear to hear that they're that bad. They actually think, no, they're actually pretty good. And so they have to go in front of someone who does have the ear, and they're not going to be gentle about it. They're going to be quite blunt and say, you know, you're terrible. It's, it's sort of this idea that we, we have a very difficult time of, in evaluating our own gifts and talents. And so often, we actually do think we are something rather than nothing. It's sort of our inclination to think that way. What gospel spirituality does is that it places us into a position where we are evaluated not by simply ourselves, but by one who is beautiful, the most beautiful, the most majestic, the most awesome, the most wonderful, that is to say Christ. And when we evaluate ourselves relative to Christ, we will see one day that we are nothing when we thought we were something. You do not want to stand before the Lord one day and say, I have all of these gifts and talents, and this is why I am worthwhile, and I'm somebody special because of all this I have accomplished. That will be no different than someone who is utterly flat and completely unable to hear their own ineptitude in their voice. It'll be far worse. You know, God doesn't need anything from us. There is nothing that he requires from us that he's saying, if you give me this, it will make me feel so good about myself. He says that the earth is his footstool. The heavens are his throne. He reminds us in James that our lives are but a vanishing mist. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Is, is it that God really, really needs you to give up your job or your family or your money or your wealth? You know, we talk about idolatry quite often, but God doesn't really need you to give up anything, not for himself. It's not as though he's waiting for you to hand over everything so that he could use it for his own. He doesn't need it. That's why we also are aware that God doesn't even care about, like, if you're parents, that you give up your children. God is not a God of child sacrifice. You know, when Israel was a nation and all the neighboring peoples around them worshiped all sorts of idols, you know what they did? They sacrificed their children specifically to the God of Molech. And by doing so, it was their way of saying, We're, you got this Molech God, you 
want this in order for my life to be better, which is my son, my daughter. And that's a horrific thing. God never asked for that. Actually, he did ask once, you might be thinking, with Isaac. But that was always meant to be not a test of God needing Isaac, but rather of God wanting Abraham's heart, his worship. And that's ultimately what God wants most from you. He's not looking for your money. He's not looking for you to give up your children or your spouse or your career or your comfort. He's looking for you to give up you. And all of those things are but barometers. They're meant to be a symbol, a sign of what you truly treasure, what we all treasure most in our lives. And God is a jealous God. He will not compete with those things. He doesn't need it. So it's very important for us to not confuse the thing with our hearts that actually love the thing. The thing being career, college, um, wealth, family, anything. God is fully happy with you having those things, but he never wants you to have those things above him. It's why until we understand that all of these things actually are nothing, we'll never really trust him. And we won't really believe in him. Even our safety, our, our sense of security in this time period where there are wars and rumors of wars, there's all sorts of disease and all sorts of turmoil, and it's our instinct to feel afraid, to feel timid. Our hope then, is it resting on a cure for a disease, a peace treaty, a government, a military? Or is it dependent on a God who is Lord of all? If it's dependent on God, then no matter what the circumstances are, we'll be okay. Even if we have to undergo tremendous trials, as so many of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are literally going through right now, the church, to be a Christian amongst a, a Taliban-ruled country, that's asking for a lot of faith. So if your faith is just on some sort of material good, it will disintegrate in a moment. But if it's based and rooted on a true God, the basis of God's word, that the promises are true, then yes, you can even outlast even the most horrific of regimes. So know this is that God is not looking for us then to provide for him religious works and duties. There is nothing that we do inherently in and of itself that makes God happy with us. Not even sitting here on Sunday, not even in the middle of a pandemic, is God saying, wow, you know what? The fact that you did that, I needed you to do that. And if you didn't do that, I wouldn't be God. I couldn't be satisfied with me. That's not what God is like. God wants us to trust him. And all of the areas in our lives, any area that perhaps we feel pain when we lose it is an area that God wants us to surrender. Not because he's looking for the thing, he's looking for our hearts and he knows that's what we treasure the most. Any pride, any instinct to defend yourself, any self-righteousness, to feel irritated or angry, 
suddenly begin to realize that something isn't really something at all. And you know, sometimes it's over the, the most foolish of things. This past week, I was dropping my daughters off in the East Coast and uh, in New Jersey. And I drove into New Jersey. And I tell you, New Jersey drivers are terrible. And I'm from New Jersey, by the way. So if you've ever lived in the East Coast or driven around New York, New Jersey, um, Philadelphia, <laughs> merging is always hard. Any for even my kids who are learning, my younger kids who are learning how to drive, merging is one of the most difficult parts of driving. And there you have all these, so there was a huge traffic lane due to construction in the middle rush hour. And so the, the right lane was long and you wait in the back and you're waiting. And you, you finally get to that point where, and then someone comes right up to the very end, you know, that person, that person. And they are right there. And so I'm at a decision point. Do I get as close as I can to the next bumper right before, maybe an inch before so that they cannot squeeze in? Or do I let them in? I, it's, it was so hard. It was so hard. I won't even tell you what I did. <laughs> but you know, when you think about it, that's something really is nothing. I let them in. <laughs> it was a battle though it was a real battle but that's so minuscule it's such a small moment and we have so many of those moments in our lives and big moments big issues where we're saying I refuse the Lord is saying I want your heart I'm not looking for you to give me a bunch of prayers and fastings and going to church I want you and until you trust me completely with everything, then you'll never understand me. Not really. Until you make that something nothing, you'll never find Christ beautiful, wonderful, spectacular, breathtaking, awesome. And so gospel spirituality is heeding Paul's warning, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you know who is the greatest liar and deceiver in your life? It is not the people around you. It is not Satan. It's ourselves. I am my greatest deceiver, and it's happening all the time. It's not the media. It's not someone, some enemy. It's not even Satan. It is you and me. We deceive ourselves so regularly. And what breaks through that deception is the Holy Spirit bringing to you God's word and the truth of it. And suddenly you see so clearly what we cannot see on our own. Now, what Satan does is he's not a creator. Only God creates. And what Satan does is he takes what's already there and just exacerbates it, aggravates it, increases it. And so because we have self-deception, what Satan says is, you see, that person really doesn't like you. That person really is ill-treating Ill you. And you need to do something about it. That's what Satan does. He's an instigator, an accuser. But he never creates something that's never there. It was always there. We just need to see truth behind it. And that's what God's word does. It shows us that when we see that we're not something, we're nothing, 
then we have a right view of Christ, and then we can actually see what we can boast in. That we actually do have this wonderful new identity that is in Christ. Secondly, as boasting in Christ tests our work, we have to be in a place where we are open to the testing of all that we do. And in Galatians, we have seen that this work is anything and everything we believe that makes us righteous before God and others. And that's very, very important. It's, it's very important in life, in work, in study, in friendship, is to believe wholeheartedly that you are not defined by what you achieve, by what people do for you, by what you do, but rather by Christ, and it frees you. And praise God that he doesn't look at us the way that we are searching for an associate pastor. So we sent out a, an advertisement into different, like to Gospel Coalition, to different seminaries all around the country. And the elders and I, we've been getting a bunch of resumes. And as we look at the resume, you see, as most of you know, you've either looked for a job or you've been on resume committees and teams. And, and so you see education and experience and skill sets and all these things, and you're processing that and evaluating that. Imagine if that's how God viewed our acceptance before him as we had to submit a spiritual resume. And on it were all of our achievements. The, here's the thing is that sometimes I think we actually do think that's exactly what God wants from us, is a spiritual resume. And in heaven, there's an interview committee. And God sort of has his angels there, and they're all looking through all of your resumes and saying, well, yes, no. You know, this is the disapproved pile, the approved pile, the sheep pile, and the goats pile. Could you imagine if that's how God was approving your acceptance before him? So what would you put on your spiritual resume? I attended church this many years. You know, I memorized these Bible verses. I went on this mission trip. I was a pastor. I was a missionary. I did this. I read these books. I taught these people. I was a discipleship group leader. I think if you think of it that way, do you see how ludicrous that is? Like that God would actually evaluate us on that basis. But this is exactly how so many of us believe that we are acceptable to God as though he has this resume committee before us. That counters exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. Our boasting is in Christ alone at the cross. That's the sole means of testing whether we are able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is going to be tested on the basis of this standard alone. None other but this standard. Do you believe in Christ? Do you know who he is? Do you know that his righteousness is yours solely on the basis of Christ's shed blood for you? Listen to Jesus' warning in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at that list in verse 22. It's quite a list. Actually, probably most of us have never done any of these things. Prophesied in his name, in the name of Christ. 
cast out demons in the name of Christ. Maybe a few of you might have done mighty works in the name of Christ. And these are spectacular works. These are things that if you did them and people saw them, they would surely say, you are a true believer of Christ and you are truly spiritual. And talk about, Paul could have made these the marks of spirituality, cast out demons, prophesied. In fact, denominations, whole denominations and movements believe this. If you speak in tongues, if you prophesy, if you're slain in the spirit, if you cast out demons, then you're a true spiritual person. But notice this list that Paul lists in Galatians 5, uh, 6. It actually has none of them. It's actually counter to it. In fact, Jesus is saying here that you could be doing these things and you become actually a worker of lawlessness. And that word lawlessness oftentimes refers to the antichrist or to the devil. So meaning you can do such tremendous works and yet actually have no knowledge of Christ whatsoever. Even if you say in Jesus name. Now, I don't know. It's because I just came back from a college campus. So sorry. It's a little, these are a lot of my illustrations. They're in my mind. But you know, I was walking with one of my daughters and uh, with my two daughters and we're walking around this, her campus and there was an advertisement of this one Christian group. Actually, it's not a Christian group, one cult group. And it looks so good. And this particular church is very much known for providing awesome fellowship for college students. They're all, all, they're all around the whole country. And if you're not really discerning, you won't even realize you're a part of this cult group. And it's a, when you look at it, you think, but they sound so good. They're so passionate zealous, they worship and, and just singing all sorts of songs about Christ. But then deep down inside, when you, you know, go sort of drill down to what they believe, how they practice it, you see how diverted it is from the gospel of Christ, the, the, the full orb gospel of Christ. Unless we recognize that it is solely by the grace of God alone in Christ alone, not by what we do, we will succumb to this. And boasting in Christ always tests our work. So may we never simply think that believing all the things that we do, no matter how passionate and zealous we are, in and of themselves makes us righteous. It doesn't, not at all. We have something far better than our own works. We have the work of God's own son. Next, boasting in Christ frees us from comparison. If you look at this verse, you'll see that the phrase will boast, the verb, is a future tense verb. Meaning, the boasting that we will do, and this is why it makes sense that we should boast, for each will have to boast. And when we do this, we recognize that it's not a boasting about our works in this world in the present. It's about our boasting eternally of what the Savior has done. Because that's what we're going to boast about. I tell you, when we are with the Lord forever, you're not going to be boasting about 
your, your job right now. You're not going to be boasting about who you're married to or how great your children are or what career path you're on or how much money you have. It will matter zero. The only thing you will boast about is Christ and all he has done for you. And it will satisfy you to no end like no other boasting ever could. And so that's why it makes sense that we have this great treasure to boast in above all else. I mean, think about it this way. If a thief broke into your home and wielded his gun at you and held this gun to your head and was just about to pull the trigger and then someone comes in and wrestles that gun away at great risk to himself and he, he pulls that gun away and saves you, if you started boasting right after that saying, you know, it was actually my strength, it was actually my skills, I was able to do the work, I saved myself, you would not only look like a fool, we would all be a fool if we were that person. And yet that's what happens to so many of us so often in this world. When you have a large sum of money, a treasure trove that you've saved up over and over again, but if a murderer is holding you at gunpoint, that treasure trove means nothing to you. If they're just about to pull the trigger, no matter how much you've accumulated, it means nothing. When your child has been struck by a car and is on life support, you really won't care about whether they won that game with the game-winning home run or whether they bought, brought in straight A's or straight F's. You, it just won't matter if that happened to your child. It's all about perspective. And that's Paul's point, is that when we truly see whom we will boast in eternally, all the things that we think are so important to boast in now won't be that great at all. Look at verse five again. For each will have to bear his own load. Remember earlier, we saw that we are to bear one another's burdens. That's a mark of gospel spirituality. But that doesn't mean we rely on the fruits and labors of other people as though it's our own. Husbands, your wife's faith will not get you into heaven. You can't say to Jesus one day, I'm with her. You know, she's the one who prayed a lot. I know, but Jesus, I know I didn't pray a lot, but I'm with her. It just doesn't work that way. And parents, your faith, no matter how well-intentioned, will not save your children. It's important to raise your children in the Lord, but there's a certain point where you realize that there's only so much you can do. Like I said, I like this college drop-off is in my head, and I know it's in a lot of your heads. So for those, I remember though, you know, when my kids were a lot of your kids' ages, young baby, toddler, nursery age, grade school, you know, all the things that go along with it, the things that are most important. But by the time they hit college, where they're going off, and you have to drop them off, and I drop them off 3,000 miles away, suddenly all those things that were so important, you know what matters a lot now? Do they know the Lord? A lot. And all those times that you spend on their studies, on athletics, 
on extracurricular activities, on competitions, and all these things, what does it profit a child if he or she gains the whole world of athletics and of competitions and loses their soul? What does it profit that person? We have to be really mindful of the fact that who are you raising? Are you raising an adult who, as a child, you're just gearing them to make a lot of money and be popular with people, but they lose their soul? Or are you rearing them so that they actually live and love Christ? Now, again, there's a certain point you have to say, but now it's you. And when you're at that stage of life and you see them now going off on their own, and some of you are now beyond that, you've gone past the college years to, to the adult, you're raising adult children. You are adult children. Or maybe you're really older adult children with aging parents. And you know, we go through this whole stage of life. And until we recognize, I have to bear my own load. I bear one another's loads together in Christ, as we saw last time. But I'm responsible for me. And I'm responsible to help this person to recognize that they are responsible for themselves. And so your goal is to support them to make them understand they're responsible for themselves. And the weightiness of that, it's a huge weight. And so may you prepare your children for that, not just preparing them for academic and worldly success. So boasting in Christ is that third mark of spirituality. It's a wonderful mark. It's a blessed mark. And the last one is a very interesting one that Paul speaks of in verse 6. It's sharing with one another. And let's look at verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Meaning there is a teacher of the word and there is receivers of the word. And the receivers of the word, may they share with those who teach the word. This last mark of spirituality speaks especially of this, the relationship between those who serve in ministry and those who are caring, being cared for by under-shepherds in ministry. Um, I remember when I was in Chicago, I, my previous ministry, I was, um, after most of the people were gone, Sue and I were there, and uh, there was a few people left, and there was a newcomer there, and he said, you know, you, I, you have like the, the best job in the world, and I was like, oh, really? Why? What do you, why do you say that? And he said, because you work one day out of the week for just two hours, and then you get to play all week. <laughs> and I said, I wish it was like that. <laughs> it would make life a lot easier. That person's perception of pastoral ministry, I think sometimes is an oft-understood view. And the challenges of serving in pastoral ministry, as, especially as we're looking for an associate pastor, and I really ask that you pray for this process, for this time, because we really need God's wisdom. It's, it's quite challenging, actually, to work through and find the, the God-given person for this role. But one thing that I came to realize is that when I was ministering in my previous church, um, Sue and I, we, you know, we were just got married, and it was one of the most, diff for many different reasons, it was a very difficult time of our lives in, in ministry and in life. And um, one reason was that we were 
we were paid so little that we basically had to go into debt for even just our basic living expenses, food, rent, and all these things. And we racked up all this debt. And the yeah, it's a long story. But I remember saying to myself, if I should ever have an opportunity to be a pastor of a church, I really want to support the people who are serving in the church to actually be free to do ministry and not necessarily think, how am I going to survive? Because the mentality of the church that I served at was, oh, by sacrificing everything and barely surviving, that's really good training for ministry. You need to sacrifice like that. And while there is a place for that, it's important for the church to realize there is a place also to actually care for those who are providing for the people who are receiving. And so providing for those who are caring for those who are receiving. And so when we think about ministry and when we look at Paul's words in verse 6, it's so important to realize this is a partnership. We're growing together. The flip side of that, the other side of the spectrum is that there are too many people who are in pastoral ministry who use this position to accumulate massive wealth and authority and power. And oftentimes with such abuse, I think you're hearing throughout evangelicalism of a number of different pastors and churches that have sort of gone down this road and have really been abusive in that side. And Lord willing, may we never be in that place. So you have these two extremes. One side says, hey, let's make this person and their family suffer as much as possible and make sure that they're never provided enough for and no one really thinks about them enough so that they are just struggling. And then you have the other side of saying, let's let pastoral ministry be a place of such wealth and power that they're this almost king-like figure in the church. Both are evil and both are actually to the detriment of God's people and to the church. Paul's telling us that one mark of spirituality in the gospel is that the church gathers together to care for one another. We do that by bearing one another's burdens, but we do that as pastor to shepherds and we um, to, to the flock because a pastor is a shepherd. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus says. A pastor is not someone who's a hired hand. Martin Luther, though, says this, it is impossible that one should be devoted to household duties day in and night for his support and at the same time pay attention to the study of Scripture as the teaching ministry requires. So as we look for someone who is an associate pastor, may we support this family well so that they can do the work of ministry. But there has to be a balance, though, of bearing these burdens together because this is not a job. What I do and what this person does and so forth and so on, it's not a career. It's not a profession. It's not clock in and clock out hours. Um, many people say, oh, how's, what do you do on Monday or day off? And I always say, I don't really have a day off. It, I work on 24-7. It's just how it is. And I accept that. That's the call of ministry. That's a love that I have. That's the challenge that I have. And it comes with being a shepherd. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's our call. 
And whoever we bring on, you should have, you should look at that person and say, that person has that heart. So as under shepherds of the gospel of Christ, I have to have that heart. And that frees me to care for you. And your burden then is to say, how are you going to care for us? And it should be this mutuality of, as Paul says in Romans 12, outdoing one another with love. Like we're both looking out for each other rather than one side or the other. When, there's, it's, when the church is only one-sided in its approach of pastor and uh, ministry to the members of the church, we really falter and we fall. But when we're outdoing one another, the name of Christ is exalted. So to truly be a, a spiritual person then, let's go back and look, we restore one another when they fall. We bear with one another and bear one another's burdens together. We boast in Christ together. And then together as a church, we share the burdens of love with our leaders and our under-shepherds and the members of the church. And by, when we do this, when we love one another, the world knows, according to Jesus, we are his disciples. Don't you think we need more of that today than ever before? I do. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege and honor of being able to serve you by serving your people. And Jesus, I think of you in this very way where you stood before thousands of people. You had only a few baskets of bread, a couple, two people, actually a couple of loaves and fish. And it says in your word that you looked out because they were like sheep without a shepherd, all those who are gathered. And you had compassion. And so you fed them, not just physically, but spiritually. I thank you for this church in the midst of this pandemic to be able to gather together like this. What a treasure and joy it is. May we never take for granted the blessing of gathering, the hearing of voices and laughter and the conversation of song, of prayers lifted up. And as we come, we long to be a spiritual people, a gospel-centered spiritual people, to restore one another, to bear one another's burdens, to boast in Christ together, and to share the burdens of life together with one another. May you be praised, O Lord, as we sing and as we come to this table. Thank you, Father, for your Son, all that he has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.